This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. relationships are very funny and in love we're sort of lost we're beginners all over again that's the great story of human beings i believe is that our story isn't finished we begin all over again every time we fall in love and when we fall out of love and when we fall out of love that's really a fall you know where do we fall to and how do we dust ourselves over and get up again and brave enough to attempt to make ourselves vulnerable all over again. And so I wanted the poem to kind of hold all that stuff too. I wanted it to be a mixture of philosophy and slapstick. I really wanted it to be quite comic too, without it tipping into caricature or or, or cartoon. Do we ever let go in love? And how does love make and shape us? Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's great to have your company. Well, today's show is all about love, love and more love. Yes, chasing it, feeling it, speaking it, controlling it and leaving it. South African-born novelist and playwright Deborah Levy talks chasing love and its risky consequences as played out in her playful dystopian philosophical poem An Amorous Discourse in the suburbs of hell and do we feel poetry rather than understand it poet author and publisher michael schmidt talks me through his ambitious new collection of poetry lives of poets which connects the lives and works of over 300 english language poets of the last 700 years this is a show about love and expectation intimacy and words vulnerability and bitter disappointments but first A shimmering angel is blown off course during a storm, landing in the cosy apartment of an accountant. An amorous discourse in the suburbs of hell. Life is only worth living because we hope it will get better and we'll all get home safely. The provocative words of Deborah Levy from her Man Booker shortlisted novel, Swimming Home, published in 2011. Deborah Levy is a South African-born poet, novelist and playwright. Her trademark moody, intense and exacting reads ooze with creative charm, imagination and humour. I have to say, this lady is one unique wordsmith. Deborah's notable reads include Swallowing Geography, Beautiful Mutants, Ophelia and the Great Idea and Swimming Home. Incidentally, Swimming Home got Deborah shortlisted for the Specsavers National Book Awards, as well as the UK Author of the Year Award. In 2013, Deborah published a very interesting book, Things I Don't Want to Know, a non-fiction response to George Orwell's essay, Why I Write. The man who famously declared, all writers are vain, selfish and lazy. It's a very stimulating read. I really recommend it. Deborah has also written over 20 plays and her work has been staged by the Royal Shakespeare Company. In a recent interview, Deborah said, writing and reading aren't about always knowing where we are going or declaring our certainties. It's about airing our doubts because it's our doubts that are the route to getting into the whole mystery of life. 
Over the weekend, I got the opportunity to chat with Deborah about all those crazy expectations, hopes and dreams we have when falling in love. And I threw her a line from her latest book. I think I've been waiting all my life to try out the best parts of myself. Touch me. I asked Deborah to talk me through where she was going with that passionate outburst. Well, I wanted to give those lines to a man because I didn't want the uh, male accountant who uh, encounters an angel in a suburb in uh, North Ilford to be a stereotype. So I wanted to have him think about what he wants, what he's chasing when he's talking to this angel. And that's what he wants. He wants to try out the best parts of himself in the experiment that love is. Because in my view, love isn't a sort of done and dusted, is it? It's something that we all want, we all need. If we're lucky, it's something we all have experienced or are experiencing. And I believe that the, the place that we do try out the best parts of ourselves is, is in love and maybe the worst parts too. Now, Deborah, an amorous discourse in the suburbs of hell was brought out in the early 90s. And I know later we might discuss a few of your other books have been reissued. I'm just wondering, you went and you rewrote this. And I'm wondering now that you've had children, how did the rewrite change from the last, I suppose, 20 years of all this experience you've had in life? Yeah, well, it was very odd to rewrite it. I didn't mean to. I said to my publishers, well, leave it with me for a week. I'll tweak it. And two months later, I uh, delivered it, having rewritten a substantial part of it. But in fact, much of it still remains. I think that I wanted to make them a little more complicated, give them problems that we all have. I wanted them to try and really tease each other, understand each other, try and seduce each other. And, you know, at one point she says to him, you want a woman to complete your plan, but it's not my plan to be completed by you. And he says, well, I'm much more contented than you. I have my friends and I have my routines and I'm all right. And I guess by the end, when the angel leaves, she makes the point that I guess encapsulates the whole poem, which is that we are all architects of our lives, of our own paradise. Our story is that we're living and we're furious and we need to try out the best parts of ourselves in the story of love. And we all have a dream idea of ourselves in love and what our ideal partner is. And your man in this conversational poem, or I've described it as a short story meets conversational poem. He's very contained. He is very much a man who has his daily habits. Whereas our angel is very playful, she's very spontaneous, she's very passionate and really sets up the conflict or the collision course that the sexes are on in terms of their attitudes to love and their ideas of relationships. It's very interesting. It's very funny. (laughs) Well, yeah, because I think that uh, relationships are very funny. And in love, you know, we are, we're sort of lost. We're beginners all over again. That's the great story of, of human beings, I believe, is that our story isn't finished. Uh, We begin all over again every time we 
fall in love and when we fall out of love. And when we fall out of love, that's really a fall. You know, where do we fall to and how do we dust ourselves over and get up again and, and brave enough to attempt to make ourselves vulnerable all over again. And so I wanted the poem to kind of hold all that stuff too. And I, I wanted it to be a mixture of philosophy and slapstick. I really wanted it to be quite comic too, without it tipping into caricature or, or, or cartoon. As you read it and you reread it, it's very hard to find fault with either character because they both have their own perspectives and they're both looking and coming at relationships very differently. But it left me thinking as we go from these spontaneous, passionate relationships into this state of domestication, are we ultimately always going to be disappointed because things can become so dull? <laughs> well, I don't know. In my poem, the male character... He likes his domestication. He doesn't feel that it's boring. And I ask the reader, do you think this is boring? He has found some contentment and some meaning in his community. And uh, being an angel, she's a loner. And she, she's flown in. She's dived out of paradise into his arms, you know, eaten his daffodils, crashed through his double glazing. I think it's our job, isn't it, to make our lives interesting and not to blame anyone else. If, if they're not, uh, we have to find the point to our lives. And that's quite a harsh uh, remit, isn't it? So I guess my poem explores that too, those existential questions. Well, we are our life. We have to find the point to it. No one else is going to do that for us. But maybe we could just be a little bit more gentle with each other on the way. And an amorous discourse in the suburbs of hell kind of tries to nail those thoughts to the page. And within all of that, I suppose we all have to be very much receptive, open and flexible with difference and changing circumstances within our relationships or within the people that we meet. Can I ask you something? You wrote a very interesting essay on things I don't want to know. And it was in response to George Orwell's essay. And... I'm just interested to know about your tact in all of this, because it's very much where literary criticism meets memoir. Is that fair? Yes, there's memoir and all my writing. In Things I Don't Want to Know, I took Orwell's four headings, the uh, motivations he had identified to sum up why he writes. And I thought they would be useful to look at, um, again, from a female writer's point of view. And where would you figure in all of that, Deborah? Because you've written very intriguing, passionate, certainly edgy books over the years. Well, in the essay, Things That I Want to Know, which is a sort of cross, isn't it? It's a mash between an essay, travel journalism, memoir, and psychogeography, I guess. I go back to my childhood in South Africa when I am five, and then we meet the narrator in England when uh, I am 15, and then we meet her again in, in middle age. And so I really want to try to show how a life kind of moves through these different decades and what they taught me about writing. I guess that things that I want to know, which I'm actually writing a sequel to, to be published by Penguin in the next year, is really about the things that we know anyway, but don't want to know we know. 
So we, we kind of repress them, we push them down, but they come back to chase us because we haven't sorted them out. And it's interesting you bring that up because if I look at your book, Swimming Home, it's very much a story of repressed pain, brokenness, and then challenging that in your life and almost tempting fate. Can you tell me about it? Because it's an extraordinary powerful read, but it's very, very sad. Uh, Swimming Home is about a, a fragile young woman in her 20s, Kitty Finch, who arrives to Gatecrash, a family holiday in the south of France in 1994. She has written a poem and she wants the male poet who has rented the villa for his family to to read her work because she believes she's in telepathy with him, that she can read his thoughts. And this male poet uh, has some pretty dark and upsetting thoughts. He, He was Jewish. He was born in Poland. He left Poland when he was five by being smuggled through a forest by his father who said to him, uh, Joseph, you can never come home. You can never come home. And those words, you can never come home, are usually said in anger. Go away and never come back. But these are said with love because if Joseph comes home, he will die because Poland is occupied by the Nazis at that time. And so Joseph has problems with love because these words, you can never come home, are said with love. And he's a philanderer, and he's always looking for love in other women and inappropriate women. And his childhood comes back to chase him in swimming home. And so I suppose that um, I set it in the south of France because I wanted to have quite a depressed character somehow exist very cheerfully under the big blue sky of, of the French Riviera. And it's interesting, his wife Isabella is also a very damaged person who is torn apart by her memories. She's a war correspondent and her job presses her up quite close to the suffering world, to civil wars and massacres. And I guess what I'm exploring in uh, through Isabel is for a woman, what does it cost her to go out into the world and do the things she wants to do? Because when she returns home, her daughter, her teenage daughter, has missed her and is angry at her absence and feels that her mother's out there reporting on orphans in some other country when she's been orphaned at home with with her dad. And so I look at that very complicated mother-daughter relationship there. How should she be in the world, Isabel? How should she be? How is Nina, her daughter, going to process the way her mother uh, is away? So I make that as complicated as I possibly can because it is. And I also give fathers and daughters an airing and swimming home because the father is kind of the more domesticated character. He's the one who roasts the chicken and sews buttons on his daughter's cardigan and all the rest of it. Nina has to try and become someone she wants to be. She has to work out life for herself and these are, are her role models. So it's very much a 21st century book in that sense, going back to some of the historical traumas of the 20th century. And it presents a very interesting question in marriage in terms of the risks we're willing to take and how open we are in our relationships and our sense of trust, because there's a huge gamble made in this book. There is indeed. I mean, risk and safety, I I think those are very interesting subjects, certainly for writers. Because 
we can either die of safety. I mean, there is such a thing as that, where we explore nothing, we experiment with nothing. I mean, imagine saying at the end of our lives, you know, I never, ever experimented with anything. That deadening, that numbing, mundane pain yeah. must be just absolutely awful. So I think that uh, sometimes we have to take risks, chase the things we want in life, look at who we've left behind, look at who we're going to meet in the future. These are all the subjects of the, the great stories and literature and also the stories of our own lives. But the sad thing is there, Deborah, as you have in the book, not everyone gets home safely. Some people pay the ultimate price. Some people can get away with the risks they take and others, well. In Swimming Home, we have Joe, who I ask the reader through Kitty Finch, if she can read his thoughts like she's in telepathy with him. And he's got some very distressed thoughts because of his childhood. Um, We won't do any plot spoilers here. And I ask, well, can we save someone from their darkest and most upsetting thoughts? Kitty Finch really wants to. But I think Nina, the daughter, as an adult, gets there because she makes the point, whatever, life must always win us back. Deborah, I'd like to end our interview, if you wouldn't mind, with a reading from An Amorous Discourse in the Suburbs of Hell. So I'll let you choose from wherever you want. Why don't I go for his voice? And he is telling her a little about what he wants and and why he's happy. So this is, let's go. He, I like plain shampoos, soaps, ecologically sound detergents, 100% wool, good strong tea, olive oil, budget permitting. I like the light to be just light and the dark to just be dark. I do not wish to live in a grey area or to read between the lines. Love must start on the first line, continue on every line. No line without love. And then she marries me. That is my wish. Accidents that happen follow the dark. Coincidence makes sense only with you. You don't have to speak.
For those of you who are wondering where that sexy voice comes from, well, it's the heavenly Icelandic singer-songwriter Arnor Dan. I'm sure you'll agree, he's quite something. Okay, coming up next, what shall I say? Because talk, I must. 700 years of English language poetry. Talking books on News Talk 106 to 108. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. I'm Susan Cahill. It's great to have your company. Now, if there's a book or writer you'd like me to cover on the show, well, why don't you drop me an email at talkingbooks at newstalk.ie. It's always lovely hearing from you, really lovely. And of course, getting your take on the world of books, the good and the bad. OK, let's now delve into 700 years of English language poetry. Michael Schmidt is a poet, publisher, novelist and biographer. Born in Mexico in 1947, he studied at Harvard, read English at Oxford and is currently Professor of Poetry at the University of Glasgow and Writer-in-Residence at St John's College, Cambridge. He is the editor of PN Review, which he founded in 1972 and is the founder and director of Carsonet Press. Michael's books of poetry include A Change of Affairs, The Resurrection of the Body and The Love of Strangers. He is also the author of nine books of non-fiction, including... The novel, a biography, the story of poetry, from Pope to Burns, the first poets, lives of the ancient Greeks, and he has edited the high-profile anthology, A Calendar of Modern Poetry. Interestingly, Michael has also translated a wide range of Aztec poetry into the English language and the poems and essays of Mexican poet and writer Octavio Paz. 
Well, Lives of Poets is Michael's latest venture, a volume of epic breadth connecting the lives and works of over 300 English language poets of the last 700 years. I have to say, hats off to Michael. It's a remarkable literary achievement and one hugely rewarding read. There has to be a poet for everybody in this collection. Michael says, down the centuries, poetry has been blessed with articulate practitioners. They maintain a continuous conversation with one another across languages and centuries. Poets live so long as their poems are heard. He believes poems can themselves reveal even more about poetry's history than the poet's prose. He says nothing illuminates Chaucer so clearly as the poetry of Spencer or Spencer as that of Milton or early Blake. Whitman lives, changed and penned, and Lawrence, Herbert in Coleridge and Dickinson, Barron and Auden and Fenton. Michael concludes the lives of poets with these simple but hugely powerful words. Answers will come in poems, not as argument, but as form. Well, a few weeks ago, I had the pleasure of talking to Michael Schmidt from his home in Manchester. I put it to Michael that he must be absolutely crazy to take on the task of compiling 700 years of poetry in the English language. While admirably ambitious, it has to have been a tremendous amount of hard, hard work. Let's take a listen. It is, and uh, when you're writing it, you suddenly remember there are countries you haven't, you haven't considered. It's like three-dimensional chess. You suddenly realise, oh my God, I've missed out Australia or I've missed out uh, the Caribbean. And you have to go back and, um, and fill in your gaps, of which there were many. And it's quite a conversation, the way you've produced the book, because you look at both the poet's creative output, but also the historical context that they're writing in. And we get lots of human psychology, lots about their relationships and their vulnerabilities. It's a very Mm. interesting guide to poetry, as well as highlighting some of the masterworks in all of that. Oh, that's nice of you to say that. No, I think that for, for me, what really matters in writing about literature is what the creative people say, not necessarily what the critics and scholars say, though the scholars are very useful and some of the critics can be. But um, what you talk about, I I think that the relationships between poets, and I don't mean necessarily between living poets, but between living poets and dead poets, are so vital and vibrant. It's very funny that the earliest uh, poems by William Blake are imitations of Spencer the earliest surviving poems, and that uh, Wordsworth is sort of is, is totally enthralled to Spencer, and Milton is totally enthralled to Spencer, and Spencer is totally enthralled to Chaucer. And there's this wonderful sort of sense of a very large family where the relationships are not genetic, but are in some ways deeper than genetic. They, they have to do with, with the imagination and with the language. And actually, I find it very interesting to read about Thomas Hardy and how he influenced Philip Larkin. Yes, that's a wonderful story about how Larkin was writing sort of Yeatsian and Dylan Thomasy poems and suddenly one morning because the son came into his lodging house when he was a student at a certain angle and woke him up he would pick up the selected poems of Thomas Hardy and as the poet critic Donald Davies says it tied him into a world of contingencies from then on he realised that his, his poetry shouldn't drift off into what so many poets enjoy the circumambient gas I think is what, what T.E. Hume called it but should actually better to stay on earth among familiar things do you think poetry is heard or at least revered in the way it was maybe six or seven hundred years ago in terms of the status of the poet? Because poets through the generations were outsiders but insiders and very much celebrated. But I'm wondering today, do we still dialogue and converse with poets the way we used to? 
not all poets were conversed with, and a lot of poets to the sides to depart from all that. And so we, we do remember people like, obviously, Dryden and Shelley and so on. But um, I do think that today there are poets who are very much in the swim of things, in, in the political and civic swim, and other poets who will have nothing to do with it, who feel that it's corrupting. And uh, I think what is possibly very corrupting is the, is the market for poetry, because now um, poetry can be a profitable enterprise for a publisher if the publisher manages to secure a poet who becomes a, an academic set text or who becomes a bestseller for some other reason. And there are certain formulas that you can follow, perhaps, like the decorums in the 18th century to gain readership. That, I think, is a sadness. But there are poets today. I mean, I suppose Heaney was one. Yeats obviously was one. But Heaney was one. Thomas Kinsella, who refuses not to engage with the, the, with political realities. Evan Boland, who's always, I'm thinking of the Irish ones, you know, who is always making bigger space for people who maybe haven't had enough space in the past. Uh, Derek Mahan, you know, it's a, especially in Ireland, perhaps. In England, maybe less so. In Scotland, very much so, with people like McDiarmid and then Edwin Morgan and Tom Leonard and so on. And it's quite a continuum. Can I ask you about John Wycliffe? Mm-hmm. He is a fascinating character and was a fascinating poet, writer, thinker and lived a very extraordinary life and a very difficult life. Yes, he did. The thing we tend to forget is that poetry does begin very much with religious colourings. And it often begins with opposition to to standard religion. In other words, when when the Catholic Church was quite repressive and the emergence of Protestantism seems to me to have been accompanied by uh, invention and by discovery of poetic forms and poetic strategies, which were illegal, if you like. Um, (laughs) And so Wycliffe was keenly translating the Bible at a time when the Bible wasn't to be translated into English and was interpreting the Bible without the aid of patristics. And you know, it was basically saying, let's think for ourselves, um, let's write for ourselves. And he was using English. And I think that the sense of using the vulgar tongue, using the common tongue, and also speaking in terms that uh, what I think William Carlos Williams said, any dog or cat can understand, you know, the, the, uh, in terms which are accessible to the general reader, the general listener, because much, much, much of his translation was intended to be heard. That, that was a great revolution and a great enablement. And I think the religious element has remained in English language poetry quite deep, even with those poets who, as it were, have no, necessarily have no spiritual ambitions. And if we look at John Skelton or another poet like Gerald Manley Hopkins, hugely spiritual, with tremendous belief. Well, it's Hopkins, certainly. What I love about Skelton is not the belief so much as the, uh, as the naughtiness and the, uh, the playing against, if you like, the... Um, the dictates of the church. He was said, he was said to have a mistress, and his local bishop told him to eject her through the door. So he ejected her through the door and allowed her back in through the window. You know, there's this wonderful sense of following the rules very, very <laughs> precisely, but without without regard for their nuance. So um, Hopkins is an amazing poet, um, astonishingly sensual grasp of incarnation and of religion. It's, it's simply beautiful, and the sense of grace. I mean, funny thing that Hopkins is a, a Catholic convert. The sense of grace which withdraws is very, very powerful. This, having touched, as it were, the skirts of, of God, he, um, he, the skirts are then withdrawn. And, and there are those very dark sonnets where he's um, really talking about despair. Now, Michael, when a lot of people come to poetry, it's at times of great either loss or great transfixing joy in their lives. And some of the times it's because of falling in love. And the great romantic poets in the English language certainly have entertained and delighted millions of readers through the generations. Who would be your top three? Would Byron feature or who, who would they be? Well, I think he would depend tremendously on the mood you were in. I, I, I think what I love about Byron is that he's always writing fiction. 
um, he's always having fun, which you don't really associate with the romantic. In fact, Byron is much more of an 18th century figure with kind of 19th century uh, postures than, than really a, a full-blown romantic, despite the fact that he invented the Byronic hero and so on. He always had his tongue so firmly in his cheek, unlike Shelley, who's, who's, who, who, whose tongue was elsewhere and was, uh, <laughs> and he was, he was very much a, um, a sensualist and in love with 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 a kind of platonic world. Um, I think if I were to choose my favorite romantic poets, my very favorite would be would be Coleridge, and then possibly though he's not really a romantic, Arthur Hugh Clough, who's so wonderful in his uh, Amour de Voyage, his wonderful sense of a speaking voice, and then possibly Elizabeth Barrett Browning. Uh, again, I'm not quite sure whether she is a romantic, but I think she probably is. Who's uh, handling a form and whose sense of gender is just so riveting. Do you think it all comes down to form, Michael? Well, I, I hate to say this, but I think it does. I think it comes down to shaping and forming and especially to prosody, the noises that you make with the language. It comes down to your sense of your your hearing sense as a reader and your creative sense as a writer of the value of vowels and the progression of vowels and how consonants relate to vowels and how consonants divide and um, parcel out vowels. It's, I feel very much that it is a matter of forms. And you say that people come to poetry when they need it. My sense is that you should always come to poetry when you don't need it, and then you get the most from it. If you need consolation, you know, go to the hymns, um, go to the liturgy. But uh, I think poems should not be used in this way. I, I don't think you're serving the poem. You're using the poem when you, um, when you bring it into play, you know, curing grief or trying to assuage grief or whatever, because it, it is just language. Having said it's just language, you know, what have we but language? And language can be sensual, it can be spiritual, it can be deeply physical. When we talk about form, sometimes that can get a little bit abstract and intellectual and can take away from the overall transformative power of poetry. Yes, I don't know that readers should necessarily talk about form, but I think that poets need to understand form and need to develop a sense of uh, how form and meaning, if you like, join up. An element you haven't mentioned is this notion of which I think my book is rather unusual in, in, in stressing, this notion that different countries have different Englishes and these Englishes feed into one another and um, and qualify one another. And in order to write your own poems, you have somehow to access the English of your own culture. There's a wonderful story of, of uh, Les Murray, the great Australian poet, who writes very much in a language um, of his own of his own background, which is rural and, and Catholic. Uh, and he was sitting for a sculpture by a, a South African sculptor in Paris. And he, he met a young South African poet who sat, sat at his feet and read him some poems. And Les asked him, well, what, what is the word you would use in South Africa for that plant? You know, what is the word you would use for that building? And he basically encouraged the young South African poet to bring into play the language that that he would naturally use, not necessarily a literary language, not a language that had been cleaned up by, by literature or by, or by the Queen's English, or the language that was actually used. And immediately, this poet's uh, rhythms changed, and he, he began to sound like himself. He was no longer impersonating somebody else. Now, Michael, you group your poets in a very intriguing and in a very curious way. And I suppose you're looking at how one poet has dialogued with another or how they interplay with another. Mm. And I love how you title some of your themes. You have bad feelings, words strung on air, the world's a bubble, humble truth. But a very mm. interesting one is Killing Dr. Johnson, where you look at <laughs> William Blake. Can yeah. you tell me about that? 
William Blake had a had a thing about Dr. Johnson. He wasn't the only one. I mean, the wonderful Scottish poet Ferguson had a, had a thing about Dr. Johnson too. There's a wonderful little spoof of Dr. Johnson, which Oho said, Dr. Johnson, to skip you Africanus, lift up my Roman petticoat and kiss my Roman anus. Very curious. That was the second verse of a, of a spoof because first Dr. Johnson speaks to Africanus and then Africanus replies. He hated, I think, the notion of definition. He hated the notion of an authoritative syntax. He did not like the notion of decorum. He felt that rules of any sort were inimical to the spirit, the creative spirit and the, as it were, metaphysical spirit. And so he saw Dr. Johnson as a tremendous plug, if you like, uh, and he, he really didn't didn't love him. And Dr. Johnson was very influential, of course. His prose, the lapidary, marmorial prose that he wrote, and obviously his own verses and his, his own essays really got up poor Blake's nose. And Blake saw him as, a, as the kind of the figure of the establishment you had to knock over. Now, you have another chapter entitled Long Grey Beards and Glittering Eyes, and you have the sublime Ralph Waldo Emerson. <laughs> Tremendous yeah. man. Tremendous man. I think he's a terrible writer. He, because, what I really hate about Emerson, I have to say this as a, someone who was once American and was sort of was weaned on Emerson, is the fact that almost any of his statements, they're vast and, and uh, cosmic statements, are then That's contradicted why I love him. by... Yeah, well, one does like that, but then he then contradicts it in the next sentence. Or it is full of, again, I mentioned the expression, the circumambient gas of which D.E. Hume speaks and says that poetry has to avoid it. With Emerson, there is a lot of circumambient gas. I mean, he's, he's always generalizing. It is a thing of the American 19th century that I find very irritating. Whitman doesn't. Whitman does have vast statements. He has a big voice, but it's a big voice that seems to me to include all of his experiences, love of opera, his, his grief at the Civil War, and so on. Emerson somehow floats above reality um, with, with these, these vast statements. I think Blake would have grown impatient of Emerson had he, had he been deeply familiar with him. Can we talk about Edgar Allan Poe? Yes. Because he's possibly one of the most popular poets of all time. Do yes. you think he deserves his status? Well, I'm one of those rare people who thinks he very much does. Um, he is the most astonishing maker of poetic sounds of any any poet, even including Swinburne, who's another sound poet. Swinburne is silly, I think, whereas Poe Poe is mysterious and and weird and gothic. But I think Poe has a continual potency, which it's hard to resist. When you're a schoolchild, you read Poe and without any effort at all, you know chunks of him by heart. You know, he just sort of, he penetrates your imagination by sound. Uh, and so I think that's what I love about him. He's, he's almost the most extreme example of what I, what I really like um, in poetry, which is this, this total devotion to form and to sound. I mean, his poems are nonsense if you look at them for sense. You know, they're really completely crazy. And he taught me that you don't always have to understand a poem to get a poet. You know, with Wallace Stevens, so as soon as you sort of start hammering away to try and work out what does he mean, you lose the poem altogether. The poem is not its meanings. The poem is the poem. Done. Isn't that an interesting lesson? It really is. And there's a wonderful introduction to Frank O'Hara's poetry, the American, the New York poet, by, by his friend John Ashbery. And he takes a poem by O'Hara and says, you can't, you can't do anything with this poem. You can't paraphrase it. You can't say what it means. You can't say anything about it. It is an instance of itself. And I think that's a wonderful thing. A poem should be an instance of itself. In other words, you, you can't really do anything with the poem. The poem. The poem can't be taken apart. Most modern poems, of course, can. And most modern poems have meanings and they, they, you know, they convey meaning and they have some kind of design on the reader or some kind of design on the subject. But with O'Hara, with Ashbury, and with a lot of the poets associated with them, with the language school and so on, what is exciting is, is what the poem does, not what it says. And if you had to choose between Ezra Pound or T.S. Eliot, what would you do? <laughs> Who would you I choose? Would... Who would you save? 
I would go to Pound, I'm afraid. Um, I love Elliot to bits. Unfortunately, I know so much of Elliot by heart uh, that Pound would remain, remains a kind of challenge. Pound is also incredibly vast. As a publisher, I'm about to publish um, a, a book of the unpublished cantos, the great chunks of canto that were left out. And some of the, some of the stuff that he left out is unbelievably beautiful. Some of it's unbelievably appalling in its politics, but, you know, it's fascinating. He's an endless fascination, Pound. I think he lived very closely with history. Um, and he also had a very, very strong love of the European past, as, as I think most American exiles who stay over here do. And Michael, when we talk about living close to history, we can't but talk about Wilfred Owen and his contribution to both history and to poetry and Siegfried Sassoon. Tremendous poets, courageous, brave, gritty, very open and very philosophical. Yes and no. I mean, I think when Wilfred Owen says, and this is one of those areas where I agree very strongly with the English poet Charles Sisson, when Wilfred Owen says the poetry is in the pity, he's talking nonsense. The poetry is always in the poetry. If the poetry conveys pity, that's well and good, but the poetry is in the poetry. And had had Wilfred Owen not been a very, very accomplished poet, had learned much from Yeats in terms of form and much in terms even of the handling of content, he would not have been able to make us feel the pity. So it, it is a matter of mastery of the, of the art, and the art is the art. You can't really suborn it. Otherwise, somebody who suffers very, very badly would immediately become a poet. Can we talk about some of the great poets from America in the 1950s and 60s? Yes. We have Elizabeth <clears throat> Bishop, we have Robert Lowell, we have Sylvia Platt, and Sexton, people who lived very intensely and had very large and challenging lives. They were very frustrated, yet very inspired, very passionate, but also very perplexed by life. You say they lived intensely um, and so on. I, I think they lived very selfishly. I don't mean that as a criticism. I think that the challenges that someone like Anne Sexton set herself were relatively easy challenges after what Plath had gone through. The poets that really I admire of that period, I, I admire Lowell tremendously because he was always coming back from the edge. He wasn't running to the edge. He was always desperately trying to come back from the edge. Randall Jarrell, another poet of that generation, Theodore Rethke, and Delmore Schwartz, who, of course, went over the edge in a different way. But I think the notion that it's a very romantic uh, affection we have for these poets, this notion that if somehow they push themselves over the edge, they, there, there is a greatness in that. There isn't. That seems to me the ultimate failure. I, a great poet like John Berryman, his suicide seems to me to have been uh, you know, one of the immense wastes and failures of imagination. Similarly, I think Jarrell's death, which may have been a suicide, people are, are still debating that, um, was unnecessary. This is, to me, a great sadness, whereas people like Elizabeth Bishop, I always am astonished she's put in the same company with Plath because no one could be less like Plath. She really did have an intense and difficult life, really in, immensely intense and, and immensely difficult because of her sexuality, because of, of her family background or lack of family background and so on. And yet she wrote those poems of the most exquisite humor and good humor. And there's, there's very little in her that is about a suffering first person singular. Now, Michael, I had to laugh when I got to page 938 <laughs> when I reached your conclusions at loose ends. Mm -hmm. And I started to read your conclusions and I realised they're only a page and a half after <laughs> getting through 930 something pages. But you write beautifully about a living poem and you say, I like the way that poems connect with one another and weave a larger pattern. A living poem can energise another poem at 500 years distance or across the other side of the world. Mm. It's extraordinary when you think about that and the community within all of that, how we're all connected in some way mm. to language and to sound, isn't it? 
It is extraordinary. It's wonderful how writing in, in the late 19th century Swinburne and then in the early 20th century Eliot make us suddenly aware of how wonderful the metaphysicals are. You know, we, we, we look back, we say, oh, look, there's John Donne. We haven't really read John Donne for 300 years or however, however long it might be. And the, there are always these resources. And so in the 50s, the English poets started looking back at the 18th century. That was interesting because no one really likes the 18th century. And yet it's such an amazingly rich and wonderful, suggestive period for us today. And yeah, I agree. I think what is also wonderful, one speaks of academic and this and academic that, but actually what's so wonderful about poetry is that it is there and available. And now with the internet, you can read any poem from any period uh, at the touch of a button and it's there for you. But I do think you have to spend time with it. You have to give it the respect that it merits. Well, Michael, I have to say The Lives of Poets, it's an epic read. It really is. It's vast, it's intense, it's intoxicating in parts and it also is a very good resource to go through as well. And what I like is it brings poets and the world within their poetry alive. Can I be nasty though and put you on the spot? You've connected the lives and works of over 300 English language poets over 700 years. What poet and poem should we close on? Maybe we should close on a poem by Wallace Stevens called The Idea of Order at Key West, which is possibly my favorite English language poem. It's extraordinarily beautiful. And what is amazing about it, if I can be technical, is that he writes in a long line, which has two caesuras. It's not amazing, two pauses in each line. And this, to me, mimics the motion of the sea, which um, he's trying to to achieve in in that poem. Really beautiful poem. The, The poet and his friend have been walking obviously in Key West, and they're coming down into the town. Ramon Fernandez, tell me if you know why when the singing ended and we turned toward the town. Tell why the glassy lights, the lights in the fishing boats at anchor there as the night descended, tilting in the air, master the night and portioned out the sea, fixing emblazoned zones and fiery poles, arranging, deepening, enchanting night. Oh, blessed rage for order, pale Ramon, the makers rage to order words of the sea, words of the fragrant portals dimly starred, and of ourselves and of our origins in ghostlier demarcations, keener sounds. And that was poet, novelist and biographer Michael Schmidt. Lives of Poets. It's a stunning book, hugely accessible, mixing poetry, biography, culture and a bit of human psychology. I loved it and will continue to. OK, that's it for Talking Books for another week. I hope you enjoyed the show. Next week, Talking Books will be exploring the life and literary legacy of Mr. Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, the moody bullish but wonderfully talented American playwright Tennessee Williams. Well, all that's left for me to do now is to say a big thank you to Ronan Brunock, who helped out with this week's show, and the lovely Marianne Kennedy and Paddy Dunhu on sound. We've been talking books. I'd like to end this poetry special with some thoughtful advice on love from Sufi mystic and poet Rumi, who advised, Your task is not to seek for love but merely to seek and find all the barriers within yourself that you have built against it.
Thanks for listening to this News Talk 106 to 108 podcast. To download other programs or for more information, go to newstalk.ie.